0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Maybe you've had this experience. Uh, You get into a really good book. And uh, the, just, just one of those books that the story just grabs you, right? And you read along, and uh, you get caught up in the tension and drama and suspense of the story. And, you know, there's the damsel in distress who desperately needs to be rescued. And you find yourself just, you know, just worried about her, right? And along comes the hero of the story who's going to rescue her. And uh, you see as the book gets towards the last pages, you're drawing to the end of the book. And you just have such anticipation of how this is going to end. And it seems impossible, and the author's done a brilliant job of, you know, sealing up every conceivable solution to the problem. And you just go, man, I don't know how this is going to end. And you just feel so nervous, and you get it tense, and you get drawn into the book, and it's already, you know, past midnight. But you just can't put the book down. So you keep reading on into the wee hours of the morning because you got to resolve this story. Uh, you just know you can't go to sleep until until she gets saved, right? And you read you read on, and you get to the last pages of the book, and you come down to the last page when it's going to all get resolved and fixed, right? It's three in the morning now. You got to sleep. They got to save the girl, and you get to the last page and it's only then you discover this is part of a three-piece trilogy. <laughs> and the hero gets captured and the damsel's left hanging from a cliff. <laughs> ah! Right? And not only that, but you find out that the next book in the trilogy isn't going to be released for a year. <laughs> you know? I hate that. No happy ending, right? There's no resolution. I hate that. Um, it's true that we, you know, we as human beings there's something in us that desperately longs for resolution that wants a happy ending we want things to work out and it's true and it's what makes stories it's what makes movies so enjoyable for us as we love that experience of going through this agony of turmoil to have it finally resolved well and uh, we're wired that way I think we're wired that way because uh, it's really a a lot about God's redemptive story through history. Uh, I'm convinced that every great story is ultimately a a a redemption story, and it ends well. So today we come to the end of chapter 35, which is really the end of the Jacob story. Uh, Jacob doesn't die yet, and and he is a factor later on in, in the book of Genesis, but it's really the end of his story. From here on, things kind of shift and change a bit, and the focus now becomes more on, on, on his sons. And, and it really marks the end of Joseph's story, uh, of Jacob's story. Um, and things are lining up in place for a good ending, right? Um, and, and just to kind of get us caught up to where the story is, you know, Genesis begins in the garden. God creates this perfect world where everything was good and right, where man was in perfect fellowship with God. And then, of course, uh, that is all broken by sin. And uh, sin causes man to be kicked out of the garden and ultimately fall into the curse and, uh, uh, of sin and death. And throughout Genesis, people dying is a constant reminder of that curse that we are no longer in the garden, we're no longer in perfect communion and fellowship with God. And through Genesis 3-11 to illustrates the full extent of that curse. Everyone dies. Genesis chapter 5, everyone dies. So-and-so is born, they live, they die. Right? Uh, then in Genesis chapter 6, uh, God comes up with this statement, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everything is under the curse. Everyone is fallen and broken. And the Lord was sorry that he had made men on the earth and it grieved him. And he sends the flood and he destroys every living thing. But then with chapter 12, there's, there's kind of a new story. And Abraham comes on the scene and God reveals himself to Abraham and he makes these amazing promises and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And in Genesis and throughout Scripture, the blessing is really the antithesis of the curse. So we start with, the, with, with goodness and perfection. It falls and there's a curse. But now God promises to bring blessing, which will be the reversing and undoing of the curse, right? And so he makes this amazing promise to Abraham that he will bless him, that he will make him a great nation, that he will inherit a, a land of promise, And then ultimately, through Abraham, all the world would be blessed, okay? And that blessing, again, is an undoing, a reversing of the curse. So uh, the story all of a sudden now has the promise of a happy ending. And so it goes with Abraham, but Abraham himself dies, like everybody else. Um, And at the end of his life, honestly, very little of the promise is realized. And he's living mostly still in a world fully under the curse, Uh, with the hope and promise of blessing, but not exactly a happy ending. Um, And we find Abraham living between curse and blessing. Of course, he has uh, his son Isaac, kind of the same story. Then we have Jacob comes on the scene. And Jacob is born fully in the curse, okay? He's He's a guy who's fully consumed with himself, absorbed selfish. He, uh, he tries to steal the blessing, right? He tries to take control of his own affairs and tries to connive God's blessing in his life. And things don't go well for him. And it, because of his conniving and his stealing, he cheats his brother, he dishonors his father. He ends up fleeing for his life and spends 20 years dealing with another conniver and cheat, his uncle Laban, who becomes his father-in-law. But through this process, God reveals himself to, to Jacob. And he makes promises to Jacob. He says, Jacob, you will be blessed. I'm going to reverse the curse through you and your descendants. I'm going to make you a a great nation. Out of you will come kings. I'm going to give you a land of promise. And you will be a blessing to the world. So there's the hope that the curse will be undone. And uh, after 20 years, Jacob starts his way home. And God is fulfilling promises. God's promised he would be with him, and he has been, and he takes care of him, and he finds peace with his brother Esau. And finally we come to Je- uh, Genesis 35, and Jacob's almost home. He's about to be reunited with his father. And um, you know, here's this guy who's been through this huge ordeal. Finally he's on his way home. It seems like life is going well for him. And then things fall apart and it's interesting uh, you know verse 8 to me verse 8 is the first sign of trouble right I mean here Jacob is at Bethel the place where he met God before the place where God reveals him to Jacob himself to Jacob again uh, he worships God has this great time of communion with God and right in the middle of this right in the middle of his time at Bethel out of the blue the author drops this note Deborah dies at Bethel, right? Now, who is Deborah? Well, it's Rebecca's nurse. How she ended up in the camp with Jacob, we don't know. By this time, she was probably very old, quite old. She had been, uh, in a sense, Jacob's mother. I mean, she'd been a significant part of raising Jacob. And she dies, right? Uh, And they bury her beneath this big oak tree. And the oak tree is named What? Oh, praise God! She's gone to be with Jesus. <laughs> no, the, the oak tree gets named. Well, she's in a better place now. No, it gets named Oak of Weeping. Right? Why here? Why does the author put it here? You'd say, well, chronologically, that's where it happened. Right? But throughout the Book of Genesis, the author has never been interested in, in following chronology. Right? And uh, there's a lot of things that in the story are clearly out of chronological order. In fact, when you get to the end of this chapter where it talks about Isaac's death, it makes it sound like, you know, uh, Jacob gets home, gives his father a hug, the old guy keels over dead, and they bury him, right? But actually, uh, Isaac doesn't actually die chronologically till after Joseph is sold into slavery, All right, So the author's not interested in chronology. The author is very interested in laying out the details of a story to illustrate truth and to teach us something, So why does Deborah die here? Why in the middle of this wonderful time of God meeting, of God blessing, of God promising, is this incredible reminder of what? Of the curse. People still die, right? We still live in the midst of the curse. What does it mean to live between curse and blessing? Well, for Jacob and the patriarchs, it meant that their life was still full of the curse, and that the promise or hope of the blessing was oftentimes very, very distant. Right? So, it's, so Deborah dies, um, and it's a reminder: Oh, yeah, we're still in a fallen and broken world. Uh, the story resumes with Jacob and God appearing to him, and and, you know, God reminds Jacob of all the blessings in his life so far. You know, he gives him a new name. He's a new person. He's got a new life. He's got a new future. You know, the whole king, the kingdom, the kings, the blessings, right? Okay, he recovered recover from, from Deborah. Okay, maybe now we can have a good ending, right? What happens? Instantly, they're on their way from Bethel to, uh, to Hebron. they near the vicinity of Bethlehem. Rachel goes into labor, right? And remember, Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife, his first love. Really, the only wife he wanted, okay? We all know about how he ended up with all the others, just kind of auxiliaries. Really, the one he loved and the only one he really ever wanted to be with was Rachel, right? She goes into very hard, very painful, very difficult labor. And we're, remind, we're reminded of what? The curse. Remember, God said to Adam and Eve, you will bear children with great pain. Right? And boy, Rachel's painfully reminded of what? The curse. Painfully reminded of the curse. Uh, Not only is it a painful and difficult labor that causes her great physical pain, but in the end, what happens? She dies giving birth to her son. So Jacob loses, you know, and you can kind of picture what's going on in his head. "I I got four wives. Why this one? This is the one I love. This is the only one I really wanted. And she's taken away. And her last words, on her dying breath, she names her son what? Son of sorrow. Son of trouble. Right? Okay, this is not a very happy ending. Okay, there is sadness and grief. Uh, Thankfully, uh, Jacob, you know, renames him. Uh, it would be not fun to go through uh, all your life saying, Hi, I'm, I'm sadness and sorrow. <laughs> Glad to meet you. Uh, he renames him son of my right hand, uh, which is significant of a son of favor and strength, a son of number one position, right? Uh, which highlights, and we'll see this in, a, in, in the ensuing chapters, uh, brings back into sharp focus some of Jacob's flaws that are still quite evident. And uh, the character flaw he still hasn't got over is that he favored Rachel so much and favored Rachel's son so much that it caused incredible strife and jealousy among the rest of his family. And that's what drives the next series of stories around Joseph, right? Uh, I can see this introducing, you know, uh, hey family, look at our new baby. You know, his mom called him son of sorrow, but I'm going to call him my favorite son. How do you feel about that? Right? <laughs> Introduce, uh, well, make me my new favorite son. Which just, you know, put all you down a bunch of notches, right? Um, so there's the curse. Um, then it, goes, it gets worse. So they travel on. They get south of the area of Jerusalem, almost to Hebron. And they're camped at a place called Migdal Eder, which means Tower of, of, uh, of the Sheepfold. They're camping there, and it says that Reuben has an incestuous sexual relationship with one of Jacob's wives, Billa, okay? Oh, this, is just getting, this is just getting better and better all the time, all right? Um, the firstborn son, all right, goes out and has this incestuous relationship with, with uh, not his mother, but a mother figure in his family, all right? horrible. Okay, horrible. This is an atrocious sin. Interesting, in any culture, in any place in the world, this is really frowned on. Okay? You know, America's, all over the place, is passing all these wonderful laws making homosexual marriages legal. Okay? Even in America, nobody's trying to pass this law that says sons could marry their moms. Right? Okay, there's this just something absolutely in every way wrong with that. And here's Reuben doing this. Uh, Are we still in the curse? Oh my goodness! Yeah! The curse is everywhere. Okay, total depravity. And we jump back to God's assessment before the flood. The evil intentions of their hearts are everywhere, continually. Okay, here's Reuben. Vile. Disgusting, right? Why would he do this? Well, throughout the Old Testament, this kind of uh, incestuous relationship most often. Is a, is a means of usurping power. Okay? Uh, we don't know how much he was or was not attracted. He no thankfully gives no details of the story. We don't know how much Billa was involved in this. Uh, what we do know from the rest of the Old Testament, though, is oftentimes this was a way of usurping power. Absalom did this to David, remember, when he took over the, the, the kingdom. What does he do? He puts all the concubines up on the roof and in public sleeps with them all as a statement that I am taking over your kingdom. So why does Reuben do this? Well, very likely, uh, you see, Billa was Rachel's handmaiden, right? The number one wife is now gone, and he's going to make sure that her maid does not take the number one position, right? And he's going to guarantee that, yeah, yeah, yeah you have your favorite son, but he strikes at the very authority of Abraham, uh, of Jacob to assert himself as the number one son by usurping That sonship and that authority, right? By stealing from his father what his father would would freely have given, right? He usurps uh, the right of sonship. He he usurps the power and authority within the family by this blatant statement, right? By sleeping with Billah. Okay, not a nice son, right? And incredibly disrespectful to his father, right? And poor Jacob says he heard about it, right? He heard about it. We don't know what he felt about it. We know what he did about it at this point in the story. If we jump ahead to the end of Genesis, this does cost Reuben, right? In fact, it costs him the right of firstborn sonship. Everything that he sought to gain by usurping his, his position, he lost in this. Because Jacob remembered. And at the end of the story, uh, he curses Reuben, right? So finally, Jacob gets home. Well, no, uh, the list of sons. Then we get the list of sons. Seems kind of innocuous and and mundane. But this list of sons is quite unique. And what makes this list of sons unique is that it's the only place in Genesis where sons are listed connected to their moms, right? Normally, you would list the sons by birth order, right? And their birth order was somewhat mixed. Uh, Here we get them grouped into kind of sub-family units. Why? Well, it's preparing the stage for the next stories, right? And in the next story, it becomes very clear that the sons of Leah were at war against the sons of Rachel. And uh, very shortly, we see Joseph being sold by his brothers into, uh, into slavery in Egypt, right? So this list of, of uh, sons is isn't just a generic, oh yeah, and these were his kids. It's reminding us, these boys are bad news, right? We already heard about Simeon and Levi wiped out a whole entire village ruthlessly and and, uh, recklessly, killing every man in the village who were helpless and defenseless, right? Then we get Reuben sleeping with his his, uh, mom's maid, right? Uh, These guys are... Are terrible guys, right? They are very much in the curse. Finally get to the end of the story, Jacob returns to his father Isaac uh, and Isaac lives for 180 years and he dies. He dies. And Isaac dies with very little of the promise. I mean he sees enough to see his son live and see his 12 grandsons. That's good. Uh, He still doesn't own any Peace of the promised land they're no closer to a nation or a kingdom. Uh, the twelve boys, none of them seem like king material, right We don't want any of these guys to be king of anything, right It seems like very little promise, lots of curse right? um, so it comes down to it. the Jacobs story ends for me personally, in a very disappointing way. It's just disappointing. It's like, is this all there is? Well, you say, well, you know, it's just—it's only chapter 35. There's 50 chapters. Don't get so impatient, Tim. You've got to read to the end of the book, right? So let's jump ahead to the end of Genesis, right? How does it end in the end of Genesis? Well, this is how it ends. Uh, Joseph has gone to Egypt. The book of Genesis ends with the whole family in Egypt. It ends with not one single person living in Canaan. Right? And we know where this whole Egypt thing leads. Right? Four hundred years in Egypt, where they end as slaves oppressed by the Egyptians. Right? Um, that's kind of disappointing. Kind <laughs> of a let down. Well we could jump ahead even further. Um, say, well, you know, that's actually not actually at the end of the Pentateuch, gotta to get to the end of the Pentateuch. So we read Exodus, uh, God raises up Moses and he sends deliverance. Okay, now we're talking. And uh, he leads the people out of, Israel, out of, out of Egypt. And uh, they get into the wilderness and God meets them and does incredible things and wonders and signs and he redeems them. And he's about to take now a pretty good, I mean, potentially a nation, to the promised land. And what happens? They don't want to go. Right? They die in the wilderness. And while they're there dying in the wilderness, Moses The great leader gets disqualified. And he's permitted from entering the promised land. And that's where the Pentateuch ends. Okay, on the verge of the promised land with their leader, disqualified. Okay, well, there's Joshua. Okay, let's go to Joshua. They finally get into the promised land, and at Joshua's leadership, they take over the land. And they now become kind of a quasi-nation. They actually have the land of promise. There's hope for a good ending. But what happens? Well, they don't actually quite take possession of all the land. And the book of Joshua kind of melts into the book of Judges, which is horrible. It's the worst book in the whole Old Testament, right? They're anything but a nation that reflects God's glory. They make the they, I mean they would make their, their twelve forefathers proud, right? They're immoral, they're disgusting, they are wicked, right? They're fully under the curse. Sure, they got the promised land, but honestly, they were better off in Egypt, right? So you go, well, you know, it doesn't end there. You're right, it doesn't. Let's go jump ahead. Fast forward, David. Oh, David. Now, there's a guy we can, we can have hope in, right? Sets up the kingdom, sets up the nation. They become, they become a true nation, and under David, they have some glory and some worth. And David shows himself to be a great king and leader. But, but then you get to the end of his story, and how does it end? He sleeps with Bathsheba. Uh, from then on, his family is filled with strife and conflict. The last great event of his life as king, he orders a census which brings down the wrath of God, and God kills thousands of Israelites because of David's foolish sin. Right? In the end, he was not nearly as good a king at the end as he was at the beginning. Well, then there's Solomon, kingdom of glory, God bless a man blessed by God who God pours out incredible wisdom, right? And incredible wealth and the nation expands, the kingdom becomes more than it ever has been in all of history. Glorious, incredible wealth, builds the temple, worships God is a man that we can we can have hope in. There's Solomon, wise, godly. But he has kind of a habit. He likes foreign women. And he makes all of them, I mean all of them, his wife, (laughs) right? And they do what? They lead his heart away into idolatry. So here this great king who started well ends following and worshiping false gods. Well, so the story goes through the Old Testament, and finally it ends here. Uh, It ends with... The, divided, the kingdom divided into two, north and south, both end up being exiled, drug up by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. A remnant makes it back to Jerusalem, kind of rebuilds. It's never again a kingdom of significance. It's kings are never true kings. It never has God's glory. The temple is never what the temple of Solomon was. Right? And you get to the end of the Old Testament, and if you read the whole story, it's disappointing! Right? It's just disappointing. There is no happy ending. right? Well, did you ever wonder or notice how eager the Jews were for the Messiah? You, th- this should make sense. I mean, you see the Old Testament in this perspective. You should know now why they were so desperate for the Messiah. Right? I love the woman at the well. She's not even a Jew. She's kind of half-Jew. She's a Samaritan. And Jesus is talking to her and... and um, He's trying to explain to her that he's the living water, that he can, he can fix her problems. And she kind of has this uh, great, th- I love this, she has this great theological debate with Jesus. <laughs> you know, way to go. And uh, in the end, she says, well, I don't know. You know, someday the Messiah's going to come. When he comes, he's going to explain it to us, right? That's our hope. Our hope is the Messiah. And indeed, for Israel, you know, they were desperately in search of a happy ending. They were desperately in search of all this curse being reversed and the blessing coming, right? Well, praise God, there is a better ending. And indeed, the Old Testament is not the end of the story, right? Uh, this may be the, be the end of the Jacob story, but it's not the end of the story. And we know that, right? We know that... Um, after 2,000 years of very disappointing endings, um, there was a day when the Messiah came, when Jesus came. And when he came, he made things right. right? And ultimately, uh, the blessing that God promised through Abraham uh, that he said would come through your descendants was fulfilled and completed in who? Jesus right Jesus was the ultimate blessing who would undo all of the curse Uh, Jesus would set things straight and as the Samaritan woman so profoundly declares the Messiah will fix it the Messiah will explain it and you see Jesus came as the full and complete ending of the Old Testament story Uh, so he was he was the perfect and complete fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. Right? Uh, he would set up a, a holy nation, a nation of, of priests. Right? And we are part of that nation through Christ, through the Messiah. Uh, he, promised, uh, he, he, is the, he is a better redemption. When God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't perfect. The redemption that Jesus brings doesn't just bring us out of political bondage. The redemption that Jesus brings redeems us from what? From the curse. From sin and death. Uh, You see, throughout the Old Testament, they are never relieved of the curse. And sadly, what they longed for in a Messiah, the Messiah they sought, would also never solve the problem of the curse. But Jesus did. When He went to the cross when he hung on the cross for us, he reversed the effects of the curse. Right? He is a better Moses, a more complete Moses. Moses gave a law that became a burden to the Israelites. Uh, they could not keep the law. Praise God, we don't have to keep the law. Right? Praise God, we are not saved by our effort to be good enough. Jesus came to fulfill and in every way complete the law. So that now Paul says, we, we cannot be saved by the law. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He says, <clears throat> Galatians 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? Oh, let me back up. Uh, Galatians 2. Uh, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I may live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if I keep the law for if I keep for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. See, Jesus was a better Moses, right? We don't have to keep the law anymore. Jesus completed it fully. Jesus is a better David, right? He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His kingdom will never end. It will never be corrupted, right? Uh, He brings a perfect kingdom and nation ruled by justice and truth. Uh, He is the fulfillment of all that the prophets pointed toward. He is the better ending. And the good news is just that. There is a good ending. There is hope. And the curse is being unraveled and undone by the work of Christ accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection. Right? So the good news for us is that we have the potential of a different ending. Uh, now, we start with the same old story. Okay, and it's important to get this one right. Okay, we start and we are born into the same old story. Uh, let's go back to Reuben for a minute. Uh, horrible guy, right? Awful sin, as vile as it gets, right? But the reality is that there's a sense in which all of us are like Reuben. Because all sin is ultimately usurping God's place. Right? You go back to Genesis chapter uh, 3 at the fall. Uh, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what, what were they trying to do? They are trying to be like God. Right? They were seeking to usurp God's place as ruler over their life. Really, there's a sense in which we are all start out just like Reuben and Simeon, just like Jacob did, just like all of them did. We all start with that same old story, born into the curse. What it means to live between the curse and the blessing is that we start our story fully in the curse. Cursed by sin, uh, dominated by its oppressive rule over us. But the good news is that the good news is that we have the hope of a much different ending, <laughs> um, and God did give Jacob, you know, a long journey, a changed life. Right? Uh, David was a man after God's own heart, in spite of his failures. Um, they had hope, but how much more hope do we have because of Christ? Right? Because of all that Jesus finished and accomplished. We have the potential for a much different ending. Because we've been given, through Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that gives us a power and a potential to live so much differently. Okay? The expectation in the New Testament is not that, well, you'll start well, but, you know, like all of them, which, which you go through the Old Testament, they all end not so good, right? They, they, they hit their high points, but for every one of them, it's kind of a downhill slide after that. The good news is, we have a new hope and a new expectation, right? None of us should think, well, you know, I pretty well plateaued. I think from here on it's down, right? Downhill. Now, some of us physically, maybe mentally, that's true, right? I think I'm kind of on the downhill slide. Just don't remember things as well. Um, not as fast, not as strong, not as bright. Definitely not as good looking. It's, it's going downhill, right? But spiritually... It doesn't have to be that way. We have the potential for an incredible ending of faithfulness and godliness. In fact, that's the New Testament expectation, that we are daily supplanting and overcoming the effects of the curse. I love it. Paul says, it's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. My life is now animated and empowered by Jesus himself. That is the glory of a different ending. Right? The glory of what it means for Christ to reign in us. So it's the same old story, but with a much different ending. Well, you might say, well, that's all well and good, but the reality is that I feel quite cursed some days. So you feel that? <laughs> you know, maybe you feel a lot like Jacob at the end of his story. You know, you think you've had great spiritual success and victory, and you feel like you met with God, and He's appeared, and He's promised blessing, and the Holy Spirit's been poured out, and you got all excited, and then you turn around, and Wham! There's the oak of weeping. There's the child of sorrow. There is suffering. There is death. There is opposition. You ever feel that way? Right? You're going, this is not looking like such a happy ending to me. Right? Well, just like the Jews in the Old Testament looked toward the Messiah, we must be looking for the Messiah. You know... Uh, when you when you go back to the time of Jesus, you know, that was the talk. When you're into the temple, everybody was guessing, is that is that person the Messiah? Is this the year the Messiah comes? When he comes, where will he come? It's interesting, there's a <clears throat> an Old Testament commentary, a Targum, uh on, on Genesis thirty five that talks about Migdal Eder. Now you all love Migdal Eder, right? <laughs> You know, the sheep tower. Okay? It's like, what's the significance of that? Um, well, to the Jews, this was the significance of Migdal Eder. You know, Migdal Eder was near <coughs> Bethlehem. <coughs> and since the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the Targum said the significance of this is that the Messiah is going to appear at Migdal Eder. Right? This, this is what they lived and breathed. They were consumed with what? The hope of a, of a better ending with the hope of Messiah, right? How consumed are we about the return of Messiah? The sad thing is, we've gotten so good at being comfortable and happy where we are. We've got so comfortable with our moderately happy ending, we lost sight of the ending that is to come, right? Uh, The Jews knew the ending had not come yet, and they were quite depressed about it, and they were they were living in focused anticipation. Right? Focused anticipation of the Messiah. Um, we ought to be people who are searching for a happy ending. The happiest of endings. Right? And this is not it. Okay? As good as this is, <laughs> this is not it. And when you have bad days and, you go, and you're reminded, oh yeah, this is not it. Right? Uh, and there are troubles and there's weeping, and there's sorrow, and there's loss, and there's death. Uh, We need to remember (coughs) the hope of the resurrection. That at the final day, the trump will sound. Right? And Christ will return, and He will catch up the dead, and He will catch up the living, and we will reign with Him forever. Are you anticipating that trumpet blast? We ought to be. New Testament is clear, over and over. Don't don't look to today, right? This is not the end, right? The end of the story is when Jesus returns, and praise God, He's coming back. And I don't care how bad the economy gets. I don't care if we run out of oil, or we run out of electricity, or you know, nuclear radiation boils the earth. God's coming back. Jesus is coming back, right? And you know what? We are going to be a part of the most grand and glorious ending ever. Right? As bad as it is now, hang in there. Because it's going to get a lot better. Right? It's going to get a lot better. And you may die somewhere before it comes, but don't worry. Because uh, if you die, Paul says, you get, to, you get to see Jesus coming first. You get resurrected. And you're going to join with Jesus when he comes. And he's going to call up the living. And we will live and reign with him forever. That's a happy ending. Right? And that's the ending that Jesus purchased through his blood. Uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Father we do just thank you so much that you are writing a grand and glorious story through all of history and you are its its author and it's a story with uh, incredible struggle and Lord we find ourselves caught in that struggle and daily living between curse and blessing living between the sinfulness and brokenness of this world and the hope of life with christ and but sometimes it's it's draining, sometimes it's exhausting, often it's quite discouraging. Lord, help us not to get bogged down in that, but instead to uh, to to long for the end of the book, to long for the end of the story when you make all things right and Lord we thank you that uh, that in many ways this, the end has already come because Jesus The Messiah came and died. And through the cross, much has been reversed of the curse. And we truly are no longer under its spell. In Christ, we have been set free from sin and from death. But Lord, we also long and pray for that day when Christ returns, when the end comes uh, with a glorious shout, with the sound of the trumpet, and with all your children raised to newness of life. uh, Lord, help us to keep that focus and to longingly anticipate that day when all will be made right again and all will be restored to perfect blessing. Lord, we praise you that by your grace we can be part of it. And even now you are unfolding it in our life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.